0: chapter 1 of mount royal volume 2 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org mount royal volume 2 by mary elizabeth braden chapter 1 let me and my passionate love go by that second week of july was not altogether peerless weather it contained within the brief span of its seven days one of those sudden and withering changes which try humanity more than the hardest winter with which ever transatlantic weather profit threatened our island the sultry heat of a tropical tuesday was followed by the blighting east wind of a chilly wednesday and in the teeth of that keen east wind blowing across the german ocean and gathering force among the pentlands angus Hamley set forth from the cosy shelter of hillside upon a long day's salmon fishing his old kinswoman's health had considerably improved since his arrival, but she was not yet so entirely restored to her normal condition as to be willing that he should go back to London. She pleaded with him for a few days more, and in order that the days should not hang heavily on his hands, she urged him to make the most of his Scottish holiday by enjoying a day or two salmon fishing. The first floods, which did not usually begin till August, had already swollen the river, and the grills and early autumn salmon were running up according to donald the handyman who helped in the gardens and who was a first-rate fisherman there's all your end tackle upstairs in one of the presses said the old lady you'll just find it ready to your hand the offer was tempting angus had found the long summer days pass but slowly in house and garden albeit there was a library of good old classics he so longed to be hastening back to christabel found the hours so empty and joyless without her he was an ardent fisherman loving that leisurely face-to-face contemplation of nature which goes with rod and line the huntsman sees the landscape flash past him like a dream of grey wintry beauty it is no more to him than a picture in a gallery he has rarely time to feel nature's tranquil charms even when he must needs stand still for a while he is devoured by impatience to be scampering off again and to see the world in motion but the angler has leisure to steep himself in the atmosphere of hill and streamlet to take nature's colours into his soul every angler ought to blossom into a landscape painter but this salmon fishing was not altogether a dreamy and contemplative business quickness presence of mind and energetic action were needed at some stages of the sport the moment came when angus found his rod bending under the weight of a magnificent salmon and when it seemed a toss-up between landing his fish and being dragged under water by him jump in cried donald excitedly when the angler's line was nearly expended it's only up to your neck so angus jumped in and followed the lightning swift rush of the salmon downstream, and then turning him after some difficulty had to follow his prey upstream again back to the original pool where he captured him and broke the top of his eighteen-foot rod angus clad himself thinly because the almanac told him it was summer he walked far and fast overheated himself waited for hours knee-deep in the river his fishing boots of three seasons ago far from water-tight ate nothing all day and went back to hillside at dusk carrying the seeds of pneumonia under his oilskin jacket next day he contrived to crawl about the gardens reading burton in an idle desultory way that suited so desultory a book longing for a letter from christabel and sorely tired of his scottish seclusion on the day after he was laid up with a shark attack of inflammation of the lungs attended by his aunt's experienced old doctor a shrewd hard-headed scotchman contemporary with simpson sibson ferguson all the brightest lights in the caledonian galaxy and nursed by one of his aunt's old servants while he was in this condition there came a letter from christabel a long letter which he unfolded with eager trembling hands looking for joy and comfort in its pages but as he read his pallid cheek flushed with angry feverish carmine and his short heart-breathing grew shorter and harder yet the letter expressed only tenderness in tenderest words his betrothed reminded him of past wrong-doing and urged him upon the duty of atonement if this girl whom he had so passionately loved a little while ago was from society's standpoint unworthy to be his wife it was he who had made her unworthiness he alone could redeem her from absolute shame and disgrace all the world knows that you wronged her let all the world know that you are glad to make such poor amends as may be made for that wrong wrote christabel i forgive you all the sorrow you have brought upon me it was in a great measure my own fault i was too eager to link my life with yours i almost thrust myself upon you i will revere and honour you all the days of my life if you will do right in this hard crisis of our fate knowing what i know i could never be happy as your wife my soul would be wrung with jealous fears i should never feel secure of your love my life would be one long torment it is with this conviction that i tell you our engagement is ended angus loving you with all my heart i have not come hurriedly to this resolution it is not of anybody's prompting. I have prayed to my God for guidance. I have questioned my own heart, and I believe that I have decided wisely and well. And so, farewell, dear love. May God and your conscience inspire you to do right. Your ever constant friend, Christabel Courtney. Angus Hamley's first impulse was anger. Then came a softer feeling, and he saw all the nobleness of the womanly instinct that had prompted this letter. A good woman's profound pity for a fallen sister an innocent woman's readiness to see only the poetical aspect of a guilty love an unselfish woman's desire that right should be done at any cost to herself god bless her he murmured and kissed the letter before he laid it under his pillow his next thought was to telegraph immediately to christabel he asked his nurse to bring him a telegraph form and a pencil and with a shaking hand began to write no a thousand times no i owe no allegiance to any one but to you there can be no question of broken faith with the person of whom you write i hold you to your promise scarcely had his feeble fingers scrawled the lines and he tore up the paper i will see the doctor first he thought am i a man to claim the fulfilment of a bright girl's promise of marriage no i'll get the doctor's verdict before i send her word When the old family practitioner had finished his soundings and questionings, Angus asked him to stop for a few minutes longer. "You say I'm better this afternoon and that you'll get me over this bout," he said, "and I believe you, but I want you to go a little further and tell me what you think of my case from a general point of view." "Hm," muttered the doctor. "It isn't easy to say what proportion of your symptoms may be temporary and what permanent, but ye've a very shabby pair of lungs at this present writing." What's your family history? My father died of consumption at thirty. Humph! And the other relative? My aunt, a girl of nineteen, my father's mother, at seven and twenty. Dear, dear, that's no very lively retrospect. Is this your fairest attack of hemorrhage? Not by three or four. The good old doctor shook his head. You'll need to take extreme care of yourself, he said, and you'll no be for spending much of your life in these country. You might do very well in September and October at Rossay eh, or in the Isle of Aran, but I recommend ye to winter in the South. Do you think I shall be a long-lived man? My dear sir, that'll depend on care and circumstances beyond human foresight. I couldn't conscientiously recommend your life to an insurance office. Do you think that a man in my condition is justified in marrying? do ye want a plain answer the plainest that you can give me then i tell you frankly that i think the marriage of a man with a marked consumptive tendency like yours is a crime a crying sin which is inexcusable in the face of modern science and modern enlightenment and our advanced knowledge of the mainsprings of life and death what sir can it be less than a crime to bring into this world children burdened with an hereditary curse destined to a heritage of weakness and pain bright young minds fettered by diseased bodies born to perish untimely mr hamley did you ever read a book called ecce homo yes it is a book of books i know it by heart then you may be remember the writer's summing up of a practical christianity as a system of ethics which in its ultimate perfection will result in the happiness of the human race even that last enemy death if not subdued may be made to keep his distance simply by a due observance of natural laws by an unselfish forethought and regard in each member of the human species for the welfare of the multitude the man who becomes the father of a race of puny children can be no friend to humanity he predooms future suffering to the innocent by a reckless indulgence of his own inclination in the present yes i believe you are right said angus with a despairing sigh it seems a hard thing for a man who loves and is beloved by the sweetest among women to forego even a few brief years of perfect bliss and go down lonely to the grave to accept this doctrine of renunciation and count himself as one dead in life. Yet a year ago I told myself pretty much what you have told me today. I was tempted from my resolve by a woman's loving devotion, and now a crucial point has come, and I must decide whether to marry or not. "'If you love humanity better than you love yourself, ye'll die a bachelor,' said the Scotchman gravely, but with infinite pity in his shrewd old face. "'Ye've asked me for the truth and i've given it ye Truth is often hard argus gave his thin hot hand to the doctor in token of a friendly feeling and then silently turned his face to the wall whereupon the doctor gently patted him upon the shoulder and left him yes it was hard in the bright springtime his health wondrously restored by that quiet restful winter on the shores of the mediterranean angus had almost believed that he had given his enemy the slip that death's dominion over him was henceforth to be no more than over the common ruck of humanity who knowing not when or how the fatal lot may fall from the urn drop into a habit of considering themselves immortal and death a calamity of which one reads in the newspapers with only a kindly interest in other people's mortality all through the gay london season he had been so utterly happy so wonderfully well that the insidious disease which had declared itself in the past by so many unmistakable symptoms seemed to have relaxed its grip upon him he began to have faith in an advanced medical science the power to cure maladies hitherto considered incurable that long interval of languid empty days and nights of placid sleep the heavy sweetness of southern air breathing over fields of orange flowers and violets february roses and carnations had brought strength and healing the foe had been baffled by the new care which his victim had taken of an existence that had suddenly become precious this was the hope that had buoyed up angus hamley's spirits all through the happy springtime and summer which he had spent in the company of his betrothed he had seen the physician who less than a year before had pronounced his sentence of doom and the famous physician taking the thing in the light-hearted way of a man for whom humanity is a collection of cases was jocose and congratulatory full of wonder at his patient's restoration and taking credit to himself for having recommended and now the enemy had him by the throat the foe no longer insidiously hinting at his deadly meaning held him in the fierce grip of pain and fever such an attack as this following upon one summer day's imprudence showed but too plainly by how frail a tie he clung to life how brief and how prone to malady must be the remnant of his days before the post went out he re-read christabel's letter smiling mournfully as he read poor child he murmured to himself god bless her for her innocence god bless her for her unselfish desire to do right if she only knew the truth but better that she should be spared the knowledge of evil what good end would it serve if i were to enter upon painful explanations he had himself propped up with pillows and wrote in a hand which he strove to keep from shaking the following lines dearest i accept your decree not for the reasons which you allege which are no reasons but for other motives which it would pain me too much to explain i have loved you i do love you better than my own joy or comfort better than my own life and it is simply and wholly on that account i can resign myself to say let us in the future be friends and friends only your ever affectionate angus hamley he was so much better next day as to be able to sit up for an hour or two in the afternoon and during that time he wrote at length to mrs tregonell telling her of his illness and of his conversation with the scotch doctor and the decision at which he had arrived on the strength of that medical opinion And leaving her at liberty to tell christabel as much or as little of this as she thought fit i know you will do what is best for my darling's happiness he said if i did not believe this renunciation a sacred duty and the only means of saving her from infinite pain in the future nothing that she or even you could say about my past follies would induce me to renounce her i would fight that question to the uttermost But the other fatal fact is not to be faced except by a blind and cowardly selfishness which I dare not practise. After this day, the invalid mended slowly, and old Miss Macpherson, his aunt, being soon quite restored, Mr. Hamley telegraphed to his valet to bring books and other necessaries from his chambers in the Albany and to meet him in the Isle of Arran, where he meant to vegetate for the next month or two, chartering a yacht of some kind, and living half on land and half on sea. Chapter one.